Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, to control the past, they edited history. To control the future, they edited literature. The words of my guest today, the author Jane Fine. And while they belong to the setting of her brilliant thriller, Widowland, for many, these words have unsettlingly felt closer to the world of facts than they do to fiction. Little wonder then that Widowland was chosen by the Times as its book of the month, adding to a claim including the mantle of the most important feminist novel in decades. Jane, welcome to Changemakers. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a, I, I've read the book. I've loved it. I, I want to, though, for you to introduce it in your own words. Let's start. Uh, there's a coronation in 1953, a lovely summer's day in London at Westminster Abbey. That all sounds very familiar, but it's not Queen Elizabeth, is it? It's not Queen Elizabeth. So I remember my my parents telling me about the coronation and how everybody got a television for the first time for that, that particular ceremony and how exciting and seminal it was. And yet I've always been haunted by the what if, one of the big what ifs of the 20th century, which is... What if Edward VIII had continued as king and there had been an alliance, as would probably have been the case, between England and Nazi Germany? And so I I decided to flip history at that point. And we've got a coronation, which is of Edward and Wallace, and they have waited 13 years for the leader to come over to watch the coronation. They've, been, they've effectively been king and queen, but they decided to wait until he could be present. And now that's come about, and our protagonist, who's called Rose Ranson, who works in the culture ministry, is awaiting the big day. Mm. And it's it's an amazing moment, actually, when you, you bring to life what the dress rehearsal might have been like. Wallace doesn't particularly come across as a as a great lover of the institution or, or indeed or indeed the country in the in the preparations. I mean, in how much of this was based on on factual research or how much did you just did you just sort of think, well, this is how I imagined them to be? Oh, so much was based on factual research. I mean, the, the point being was that I'd, I'd written 10 novels before this, which were very much based factually in pre-war and wartime Germany. And so I'd spent a decade, more than a decade, living effectively, imaginatively in that world. And so much of it I was able to import into my alternative history in Widowland. The most important and the point at which Widow Lamb was inspired, really, came about in the person of Alfred Rosenberg, who was, in real life, he was a, a, a crazy philosopher guru known to Hitler, and he'd been obsessed with England. And his one of his obsessions was that England and Germany shared the same racial soul. And he always wanted, should an alliance happen, to be given the protectorate of Britain. And this has come about in Widowland. But the reason I was very interested, what actually triggered the the kind of germ of this story was that one of the things that Rosenberg did in the war was that he ran an SS task force of scholars who went through occupied Europe into the libraries of occupied in the universities and they took out history books. And they didn't burn history books, which is our common conception of what Nazis did with books they didn't like. They rewrote them. Mm. They rewrote history to reflect properly national socialist ideology. And this struck me as so astonishing in its not only its detail and its kind of ambition, but also its kind of like perverse 
approach to history that I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if you had a situation in which there was an alliance and Rosenberg was given power in England and he decided this rewriting task should be continued, but not about history, but to extend to classic English literature. Mm. What I felt about Widowland is that that it's it's like an amazing onion. There are so many layers to it in terms of what you could take out of it, because on the one hand, it, it sort of... I guess it explores our endless fascination with the what ifs and the what might have been of of history. On the other hand, it's a great social story about our relationship with repression and actually how might a brave island nation, the bulldog spirit, have actually coped with a very different set of circumstances. On the other hand, I see it as a telling of the relationship of women with the state and actually what happens in a country hollowed out of men. But I also see it as a story about the truth and about our relationship with with the truth. And I suppose, given that I, I guess you might agree that all of those things are true, are there any of those things that are the real points of emphasis that you would draw out? The way that women behave in, in, in Widowland, um, Rosenberg's instituted a caste system for women, which is something that he did think about, where, but it's now come to pass and there's a series of castes and at the very bottom is the cast of widows and um, single women over 50 who have no children. And um, actually this, this came from my researches into wartime Germany in which I was going through the ration allowances for German civilians and the lowest category of rations uh, as far as calories were concerned was a group called Friedhofsfrauen, which means cemetery women, sort of nickname. And they were given very, very low rations because they were worthless. And so that idea that different, the, the, the value of different women in society was something that obviously I was, I was very preoccupied by. Mm. But to go back to your, your original question, definitely that idea about what is truth and what is history and what, whether history is what we decide it is and which history we, we tell ourselves is something that not only obsesses me, I think it obsesses all of us at the moment. In fact, a very recent episode, which is the Meghan and Harry interview with Oprah, where Meghan said very famously, she said, I have my own truth. And I think that that sentence is fantastically interesting and almost as a culmination to me of a, of, of a century since Wittgenstein, this idea that truth is no longer objective, such as we had in, such as all, the whole of enlightenment would tell us, but that truth is now what you say it is. Mm. And it was very interesting and her, her words have kind of been picked up. And so they've gone into uh, contemporary jargon and people say, well, this is my truth. This is a horror to anyone that has kind of, you know, anyone over the past 300 years who believed there was such a thing as truth, but also a horror to historians, except for the fact that historiographers have long said that history is just... Whatever. Well, I was going to say, and I mean, but speaking to that point about, you know, my my truth, our truths, however, whether the truth is singular, or is it based on a number of different perspectives that give you very different vantage points? Because the ownership of, of the truth, I guess, is something that is very important to this novel specifically in terms of actually the the narrated his, historical story but it's also something that feels is is hugely contested 
right now. And it's why, you know, people like, I guess, the author Jane Harris has has described this book as being the most important feminist novel to be published in decades, because it speaks as much about contemporary tyranny and misogyny as it does about the reimagined past. I mean, when you were writing this, did you have any idea that actually this would become quite a lightning rod novel in terms of actually being a tale as much about our times as it was about that reimagined past? Oh, I think all historical novels are about our times because they are always filtered through contemporary consciousness. I don't think there is anything as such as a historical novel because anything that is written in a contemporary setting is, is a contemporary novel. The subject matter happens to be the past. So, you know, it's quotes a historical novel, but it's really a modern novel. I, I was very preoccupied with the broad brush Nazi attempts to rewrite the past because I, I used them symbolically. Symbolically, I, I thought that would stand for all sorts of ways that we're re- rewriting the past at the moment. But I was particularly, the, the literary side of things, it kind of amused me. I mean, I, I did think of this novel as a bit of a kind of jeu d'esprit because it did amuse me that you could have somebody trying to rewrite 19th century literature to take out feisty women or independent women or clever women because the 19th century novel is all about those particular things. It's women learning to become independent and gaining agency. Jane Eyre, Jane Austen's heroines, they're all about that progress from being powerless to actually getting some kind of power. Mm. So I I thought it would be funny to have a a protagonist who was trying to kind of dumb down these characters, but in the process, obviously going on our own journey of growth and realising but do you reckon, I mean, obviously you, you, you've, um, you put Jane Eyre as, as your, as the book that changed your life and actually a book that, that has influenced your, your telling of Widowland. But when you were, when you were writing Widowland, did, I saw, I suppose in framing the question, I, I saw, I think it was a tweet that you put out at the time when it was described as being a really important piece of feminist literature. When you were writing it, did you see it as such? Because it, it struck me that you were quite surprised by that description of it in terms of how people have adopted it and and have taken it to their hearts? I did think I definitely I'd marinated as I say for about a decade in Nazi approaches to women and what very, very much interested me was that the Nazis tried very hard to control women they put a huge amount of detail into the way that they controlled women in their society and they had bride schools and mother schools and you know you were busy all the time and everything there was even a fashion bureau so you had very prescriptive dresses to wear and so I've always been very interested in that idea of controlling women and how really the relationships between men and women and how men do try and control women in in many cases and so I suppose that did seep into the Mm. book that the protagonist's lover is a very unpleasant mansplainer who also is uh, is a stunman a, a, um, a nazi mansplainer that 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 really yeah, is not he, a good look is it <laughs> he's, he's, he's not a good look but, but also to pick up on your earlier point i was very interested as i think we all are in how actually our society would have behaved if there had been an alliance or an occupation. And the funny thing is that I I finished Widowland before COVID really kicked off. Um, It was just beginning when I finished it. And so actually I kind of wrote it before COVID, but the Mm. whole lockdown and, and the pandemic was an illustration to me of actually 
how quickly people change and how willing people are to obey rules, even if they're random. And in fact, sometimes the more random, the better. How easy it is, as we behaviorists have told us, if you bombard people with random rules, change in a kind of maverick way, people will be more willing to obey. And accepting a new normal, actually. One of the things that comes across for those that haven't read the book is, is the idea that, well, actually, it's a pretty grey world of accepting tyranny, of accepting authoritarian sort of rule over your lives. And I suppose the Churchillian vision of Britain as the, you know, fighting on the beaches to to our very last drops of blood is is not the telling, Jane, of, of Britain's relationship in this sort of um, fictional 1950s setting. Yeah, although I would hasten to, to let your listeners know that there is a kind of feisty group of resistance out there who embody everything that we, we hope would be the case, and that it is... It is a fast-paced thriller in which there's a very climactic end. So- oh, but, oh, most definitely. <laughs> I, but it, but the setting, the backdrop, though, is that yeah. of that actually there is this sort of the, the oppression of normality. And I suppose the question then is that you know did, did COVID sort of reassure the thesis that that is that is how we would have responded? Absolutely. I, mean, it- I remember watching a Channel Four news where there was some point at which some of the regulations had changed about how far you could go from your house and how many people you could talk to and they did a vox pop and nobody knew what the new rules were and I was very and I'm very interested in that I went when I was researching Berlinland I went to the Stasi headquarters um, former Stasi headquarters in East Germany East Berlin and it, it fascinating of course we all know you know nine out of ten east germans had some connection with either the stasi or were informers or unofficial informers and i i've always been very interested in that idea of a surveillance society which i think we're very much living in at the moment mm. because and, and and stasi germany was 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 that i think now this is partly why we're so interested in spy fiction, I think, because we're, we're conscious as human beings of how surveilled we are. I mean, Putney High Street is supposed to be the highest density of CCTV, I think, outside China. And the level of CCTV surveillance means that we're all consciously or subconsciously aware that we're being watched all the time. And I think that... And trade, trading our liberty uh, as a yeah, consequence. I think, um, it really I think we're facing lots of questions at the moment. For example, the questions around health data and, and those, those levels of privacy and vaccination passports. And they're all questions about to what, which are about our relationship with the state and to what extent we should have freedom or, or we should be effectively serfs of the state. And it's always a slippery slope. That's what I try to do in Widowland is show the, the, the slippery slope. So Rose's older sister, Celia, says, look, it's not that bad for people like us. You know, it's OK because they're in the top cast and their life is is okay mm. and that's a, that's a very common thing to say it's not that bad you know it could be worse look at the people in, in Europe you know which is why I think you know when, when you've given us some quotes that go alongside this episode I think I think they really do speak to you if you've read the book alongside it so one is obviously the, the Jewish scholar Hillel who's if I'm not for myself who will be for me if I'm not for others what am I and if I'm and if not there when I mean it feels like you know, this feels like the motif of, of Widowland actually is about when do good people stand up? You know, yeah. what what, what are the triggers? And so mm. my kind of my my decade of reading about about Nazi Germany and war and wartime Europe really makes 
makes you think about that all the time. I mean, I was sort of studying, I know one of your previous interviews, Anne Seba, mm. studied resistance, SOE resistance women in France. And, and, and I have too. And the level of moral courage required to stand up to a, a brutal police state is immense. But one of the more complicated things that people face now is that Things aren't simple. It's not like you've got a policeman banging at your door, going to take you to prison. The, the courage that's required now is to think for yourself. And sometimes that involves going against widespread opinion. And that's the hard thing. And I, and I, I don't know the, the way ahead on that, really. Um, mm. I mean, obviously, the book also speaks, I mean, just thinking about other themes that come out of it while, while you're speaking, of course, is that the big theme is the relationship between a state and women in, in this country kind of cast set of characters that, that you meet along the way but, but it's also about men as well in this and you know some are you know classic villains and when um, when Jane Harris talks about misogyny I mean they are there's some nasty characters in there <laughs> and there are some very good people there yeah. and, and I suppose the relationship with men I mean tell me I was thinking which may be a, a sensitive question to ask is that obviously you, you've put down as as your inspiration your late husband Philip Kerr and and in terms of, I just I wondered to what degree when you were writing Widowland did your own experience help provide I guess some of the rawness, some of the passion, some of the feel that just comes across page after page. If I can tell you a little anecdote, the reason it's called Woodland is that before I wrote this book, I, shortly after Phil died, I went for lunch with a really old friend, male friend, who I'd been in Fleet Street with. And he said, look, I'm really sorry. We'd love to invite you to dinner. And I said, oh, great, what? <laughs> he said, the problem is we only have couples to dinner. Mm. And um, I went away from the lunch and I thought, oh, my God, I'm living in a widow land now. How, how did you feel when, when, when he said that? How did that hit you? Well, it was very interesting. If you've been a couple for like 30 years, you live in couple land, you know, and you you have the power of two. And it's very interesting overnight as any widowed men or women will will know to to go back to your single status because everything changes and initially you think it won't but it really does and um, a sort of invisible wall goes up and I don't say this in a pitying way because it's very interesting if you've been married for 30 years to then go back to singlehood again you know it's it's a different way of living and it's it's a different experience of life but it it interested me how quickly that happened and I thought it was almost like this idea of a caste thing where, you know, oh, you know, this is an invisible wall between us. And I said, that's, this sounds, this sounds kind of maybe sort of slight, slightly overstated, but it is, is interesting how differently people are regarded, particularly women, when they're single women from when they're married. And so my widows who live in Widowland, Widowland is the kind of awful, run-down edges of towns, everything's derelict, nobody wants to live there. I did take some of this from what happened in, in Berlin and, and Germany, um, as far as kind of almost ghettos were concerned, but the idea that women who have no function in society are kind of exiled to these places but then I thought you know if you've got a group of 50 60 70 something women they're probably going to be the most literate people in society well well this is the thing because of course you know what you see is not ultimately what you get I mean the first experience of Widowland of course is is exactly as you say it's 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 dark it's depressing it's it's ignored it feels like people that lack purpose 
And of course, as you get to know the widows, you you find this sort of incredible group of human beings with so many different life experiences. And 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 I just think you brought it brought it to life beautifully. I mean, obviously, one of the things that you did was to adopt a pseudonym for the for the first time of of CJ Carey. And this was something of a, a guess who for a while pre pre publication. And um, in terms of why you did that, was was there a reason? above and beyond the mystery. I mean, what, what, did, did you think it was going to appeal to perhaps different readers if you didn't write it as a woman, perhaps? I have to say that's part of it because it obviously there's lots of Nazis in it and the quite a lot of men like reading about Nazis um, but may not write like reading books which have a kind of woman's name on the cover. So that was an element of it. But it was also really the idea that I've written very, very books set in, in definitive wartime Europe and... I always try to be really faithful to detail and dates. And so it's, it felt almost heretical to suddenly just like cast off these shackles of fact and just kind of like write an alternative history. Really pleasurable, actually, I have to say. And so well, I thought I'd be a different persona for that. And so now- Right. Well, well, I want to get into that persona, but I don't want to just lose that, that fact of mm-hmm. actually men and the books they read, because I, I, I interviewed Marianne Seacott, who, who basically said it like this. She said... Men don't read books by women and go and check out your own bookshelves if you don't believe me. And I just want to get your response to that. I mean, obviously, over time in history, you know, George Eliot, Marianne Evans, there's a whole there's a whole history here. I mean, even 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 somebody like, you know, Joanna Rowling, you know, at publishers as J.K. Rowling or, or Robert Galbraith. Do you get depressed by that? Is it getting better? Are there any signals that actually, you know, it, you can write what you want as a, as a piece of creative imagination, whoever you are? Or actually, is this an area where the winds of change just have not swept through? The winds of change have totally swept through. In the, If you're a woman in publishing at the moment, you are in a good position, not a bad position. The majority of readers of fiction are female. They're the book buyers. So if you're a woman writing fiction, you will find women buy your books. And, and it's men are in the minority, both as fiction authors and also as fiction buyers. So, so that's not depressing. I, I think that... It's it's mildly depressing that in the past that people have had to pretend to be men and I I haven't pretended to be a man, but you do get a wider spread. I'm not as depressed as I should be because I think that women in publishing at the moment are having a, um, having a good crack of the whip and just for the moment the pendulum has swung and male fiction writers are not having a good crack of the whip. Mm. But, you know, the majority of reviews are written by men. The majority of review space is still given to ma- men, novels by men, not by women. So you, you have got that problem. It's not something I feel massively strongly about, but the danger is as soon as you feminise an industry, then men will inevitably minimize the industry. So well, let's talk about CJ Carey then. You know, this is your your mother's maiden name and and your own initials reversed. And you talked about the persona that that unleashed. Who is CJ Carey? Well, it's 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 fun to have another persona, I can tell you. It's really nice. It's partly because it's kind of like unknown terrain. So I was kind of like nobody knew who I was and that was good. It's just enjoyable and and the thing about Widowland was I tr- it's it's quite humorous. I tried to a lot of it made me laugh as I was writing it. For example, when Rose is having to rewrite Jane Eyre, she gets to the point where Jane Eyre meets Bertha Mason, Mr. Rochester's first wife. And I remember reading that when I was about 12. 
and thinking, actually, you know, it's quite nice that he's looking after his first. She's gone mad. It's actually quite nice that he's still looking after her. And then realizing, oh, no, 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 that's bad. That's wrong. <laughs> but um, when Rose has this reaction, it's totally in alignment with Alliance Protocol. That is how you're supposed to react, you know. And it's very unfeminine of her then to turn her back on Mr. Rochester and leave him. And it amused me because I know a lot about Goebbels and about the propaganda ministry in in, um, in Berlin in the 40s. I know how they think and how Goebbels rewrote films and rewrote books and decided what culture would be presented to people and, and thought it through very, very carefully to make sure that people had the correct attitudes. And I think this is uh, the, the, the something that amused me to do. And I noticed actually this week, for example, the, the BBC saying it was going to make sure that a, a lot of soap operas had had storylines about the environment so mm-hmm. that shine with the COP26 conference. And that's an example of this similar kind of cultural engineering. Let's make sure we tell people what they should be thinking about gender. So, so, so you don't approve of that? Would, would... I think it's heavy handed. I mean, I think there's, there's no way that you can ignore the fact that zeitgeists exist and people will write about subjects that are interesting to the culture at large. But I think when you get a big a corporation, for example, deciding that storylines will focus on particular social and cultural issues, you have to tread really carefully. I, I've only got a few minutes left. I could go firing down that line, but I just want to just, just round out the, the kind of the persona because it strikes me reading your lockdown list is that, you know, you're binging on, on kind of spy spy TV, all the John le Carre um, classics. And, you know, I, I'm just wondering that given that, you, you know, you've, you've written, you know, fabulously about, I guess, people that have been in the business of, of, of being alternate people, you know, spies just releasing things about themselves. In terms of what writing under this sort of like nom de plume did for you in terms of the creative experience, I mean, you've talked about the humour that actually it brought in. Did it do anything else in terms of, you know, when the guardrails are off and you're not writing as Jane, but you're writing as CJ Carey? Does that, is, is it a very different style of writing, do you think, that, that, um, that you go through as part of that? And is this part of the inner spy that, that, that possibly could have been a, an alternate career. Because I, I noticed Politician was up there as well as one of the uh, the things that you did you did consider. It is true. And um, yes, I think it, it definitely, what you say is, is true. And I think I was wondering to myself recently why I'm so interested in writing spy novels and fiction. And I think that idea that I mentioned to you about that feeling of being watched is uh, part of my psychology, this, this, this sense of um, needing some form of anonymity um, because the feeling being watched is is quite strong and I don't know where it comes from I mean heavens I you know nobody's particularly watching me as far as I know but it's a kind of it's a very interesting that so all my heroines have always been very reserved and cautious and watchful um having said that I'd be a terrible spy because I'm a massive gossip when I was at university I longed to be tapped on the shoulder and people have since said you know I'd be literally the last person I mean I was already a journalist then and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to make it down the street without telling somebody. So 
I actually have a friend that had the tap on the shoulder and he told everybody in the pub that he'd had it. I mean, it was like, his, it was like he dined out on it forever. Now, just a couple of last, last questions, if I may, because you've given two wonderful observations. I'm just going to read you your, your new normal and, and get, get you to sort of respond to that. You, you talked about it being outwardly the same, same writing desk, looking out at the same trees, but inwardly transformed in the way I perceive and question both my own assumptions and those of society around me. I mean, I just thought, wow, when I read that in terms of talk about still waters run deep, pick up the story for us. I think what we've un- we've gone through in the last 18 months, two years has been the most transformative event since probably since the war in the impact it's had on our social life and our social attitudes and it certainly caused me to question question all sorts of things question authority and I think we've seen the gradual collapse of lots of sources of authority politics and maybe the church and I think that more and more people are are realizing they need they need to question what's told them and the rise of big tech is another reason that you Mm. have to Ask yourself um, how your um, preoccupations are being shaped and how your reactions are being shaped as a consumer and as a citizen. And I just think the the impact of lockdown and and what it did to us and our mental health is very very serious. What, what, what about the impact on on you? Had had you know what what are the, what are the assumptions that have changed for you personally? Do you think? I hated lockdown. I'm extremely gregarious. I love, you know, socialising. So I really, really hated being being deprived of that. But what I also disliked very much was how dehumanising it is. I hated the fact that people sprang away from each other in the street and people were encouraged to see each other merely as germ carriers. I think that although I, I wear a mask and I've always worn a mask in, in required circumstances, I think masks are, are, are demeaning uh, human beings and they, they reduce our humanity. I worried what it did to us, actually. And I think that without wanting to be doomy, it, I think the good thing that it did was that it caused us to question more deeply what we believed, what we thought society should be, what we thought our relationship to the state should be. That I think that will be the good that comes out of it. But mm. I think there will be, there's, there's really, deep trauma having I don't want to end on a doomy note here but um don't worry I'm gonna have an up an uplifting one in a minute but 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 I'm with you well I was what I was going to say is that having been with my my husband when during his during his dying and his death what people must feel who were not allowed to be with their spouse or maybe their child well, the, that person was dying. I think the level of buried trauma and probably rage is, is and grief mm. is, is extraordinary and it has been able to express itself. And, and I think that need for expression yeah. is why trying to just understand this through the lens of immediacy probably misses the point that this has still got many chapters to play out, especially on the on yeah. the social yeah. experience. Now, I did promise to, to, to end us on an uplifting yes. um, idea. And of course, I, I thought your, your tip, tip for life was wonderfully uplifting. I'll, I'll just read it for you. Say, say yes, make connections, go out even when you don't feel like it. Serendipity shapes lives and life is short, so maximise your opportunity. A final thought, Jane. Well, be a party person, you know, be as many people as you can. That's, I mean, I, I spent a life in journalism. It was 
literally hardly like work. It was so much fun. And I, I sometimes feel sorry for my children setting out on jobs that are kind of like not journalism because it was like being at a 24-hour party. And I always think you should take every opportunity that comes your way. I'm sure, I'm sure your fellow journalist or former journalist colleagues say, don't tell them it's, a, it's like a 24-hour party. But I am actually going to use my uh, journalistic largesse for a, for a final second, because I suppose the question that I haven't asked you that, that Widowland fans will want to know is, does the story go on? Is there going to be a sequel? There is a sequel. I've just finished it. <laughs> it's called Queen High. And it's set three years after the events of, of Widowland. So it's set in 1956. All I can say is I've had a lot of fun channeling recent royal events in my reflection of 1956. And um, it's, I've, it, it's actually a lot about memory and what we remember. Something very big happens at the end of Widowland. But I'm very preoccupied by the fact that we forget very quickly and not only places like China, where you're not allowed to mention the date of Tiananmen Square, but also actually Germany, where people very quickly forgot the existence of Auschwitz and had to be reminded of it. And so it's all about memory. Mm. Well, if that doesn't tee up appetite for the second telling of Widowland, uh, which I'm... When will it be published, Jane? Just as a... Um, it comes out next September 22. Well, there we have it, September 22. Jane Fine, thank you so much for joining me on Changemakers. Oh, thank you, That's so much fun. Thank you. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating? Just be